0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Hey, how you doing out there? And how are those of you who are in here doing? Y'all good? Woo-hoo! Yep. That's cool. Y'all stay awake. It'll help me. Trust me. Trust me. Hey, I've I've got some really, I think, really, really good news that I, I'm... Uh, loving the opportunity to share with you this morning. Um, Monday, uh, in our monthly elders meeting, we have been, uh, one of the things we do is, um, Terry Watkins, who just led us to pray a minute ago, one of the things Terry does for our elder team uh, is he keeps us up to date on what's going on with uh, COVID counts. Uh, Things like new cases and Um, deaths and hospitalizations and all all those kinds of things that are important numbers. And because things are trending back down and we're hoping they're going to continue, um, we're we're believing uh, that we're seeing the results of people wearing masks. And so we are scheduling to... uh, to reopen for in-person worship uh, in our spatially distanced auditorium uh, seating. Uh, we're, we're, We're rescheduling to reopen on Sunday, September 6th. Or, or whatever the date is woohoo yeah whatever, <laughs> whatever the date is um, our, our worship team's going crazy in here uh, they're, they're so excited about that um, and because uh, they, they love being able to see you worship the Lord It encourages them and they do such a, a great work encouraging us so we're going to come back uh, ready to, ready to worship the Lord now uh, one of the things that is, is going to be maybe a little different is we're going to require everybody when in the building to wear masks Uh, just going to have to do that. Um, When you're walking through the building, uh, when you're singing, we're all going to be wearing masks except for the worship team because they can get far enough away. If we did what we had to do to allow everybody to come in and worship uh, maskless, uh, we could only fit spatially distance about Twelve seats in the auditorium, so um, because we got to keep everybody like 22 feet apart or something, and so we're not going to be able to do that. So we're all going to wear, and I've been doing it week after week now. uh, During during worship, I keep I keep my mask on. Uh, It can be done, Um, and you can still praise the Lord, and uh, and and be excited in Him. So we're excited about that coming, and uh, I'm looking forward to you being here. Um, And one of the other reasons we're all going to wear a mask the way that we're going to do it is so that anybody who wants to come can feel comfortable coming. There are some people who are more vulnerable than I am and that are part of our family, and we want them to feel the freedom to be here. Um, And they won't if they're not confident that people are going to wear face coverings to help keep them safe. So, We're going to do that together for the sake of one another. Now, I hope you have your Bibles. If you have them, we're going to be mostly in Job uh, chapter 9 this morning. You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, We're continuing our journey with this man named Job, we're in a book, uh, the book in the Bible that bears his name. It's just before the book of Psalms, if you're, you know, need to, to find it. Uh, maybe this is your first time looking into the book of Job, and it's a great way to find it. Psalms is usually pretty easy to find. We're, we're in our third week of kind of learning from Job how to shelter, uh, not really shelter in place, but how to shelter in the Lord God Almighty. And the truth is, this season of sheltering in place has taken a toll on all of us. You know, it, it wasn't so great the first week, second week, third week, fourth week, but we kept thinking, okay, it's going to kind of pop, and, uh, but it lingered on. And who knows? Uh, it, it's going to continue to linger, we're, we're being told. And not only has that caused all kinds of uh, problems, uh, you know, economic problems, all those kinds of things, it's also gotten increasingly difficult emotionally, it's also impacting um, our mental health in, in incredible ways. I did some Googling about that. Uh, this, you, like, you like Googling, right? Everybody you know, does the Googling thing. And, and I came across uh, some articles, one of them in Psychology Today, that kind of spoke into this. It talked about what people were experiencing. And the article pointed out how isolation and passivity Uh, are are like the perfect storm for people getting depressed and staying depressed. And the truth is, we've all experienced that at one level or another during uh, the course of this, uh, this whole pandemic. And of course, we, we've began to see and we've heard about and there have been news reports on people who are just saying, I'm, I'm done with all the recommendations. I don't care what the CDC says. They're just jumping ship. They're getting out there, hanging out with friends, just doing whatever. Because they're saying, I don't want to be isolated anymore. People want to get out and, and be with one another. And, and the truth is, the bottom line on this is, it is, it is difficult to shelter in place for a long time. It is a hard thing to do. Now, I've been doing ministry vocationally for just a little over 38 years now, and one of the things that I've noticed over kind of the long haul is it is often times we're capable of sheltering in God for short periods of time, but it is often difficult For even devoted followers of Jesus to shelter in God for long periods of time. It's one thing to to, to trust God. It's another thing to trust God over a lifetime. You know, through the ups, we're, we're good. Through some of the downs, if they're lengthy, maybe not so good. And times can be good. But they can also be very difficult. And so to remain in that kind of place where we're trusting and being sheltered in him... Sometimes that's quite a challenge. And it's in these moments when we're, we're facing those challenges and in, in, in sometimes in great pain that we end up encountering some just really difficult real life questions. And so the book that we're studying deals with so many of those questions. I, I don't know if you know this, but the book of Job is kind of lopsided uh, with questions when compared to other books of the Bible um, one commentator I read pointed out that whereas the first book of the Bible, Genesis, has about 150 questions and the first gospel in the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew, has about 180 questions and Jesus asks a lot of those um, himself, we also know that the, the Psalms, the, the, the longest book in, in the Bible, has nearly 160 questions. The book of Job has over 300 questions. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because of the subject matter. Uh, Job is primarily, secondarily, and tertiarily. Is tertiarily a word, professor? It's tertiarily. I I got the thumbs up from Professor Kyler Campbell um, that it's all of those, it's just about, it's about human suffering. And it, not only, it's about extreme human suffering, and not just extreme human suffering, it is about extreme human suffering of somebody who is upright and moral and, and generous. That's who Job was. The, the Bible tells us that God himself, when speaking to Satan, called Job blameless. We looked at that in detail last week. We also saw last week that Job had great loss. He lost seven sons and three daughters. He lost uh, all of his livestock. He had 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 oxen, 500 donkeys. He he lost all of that. He, he, He lost his livelihood. He lost his physical health. He's this good, godly, righteous man that suffers in ways most of us, and I pray you, will never suffer. He loses his business. He loses his, his wife. He, he, he loses his wife's support of him. Throughout the book, he eventually loses the respect of his friends. Now, we also saw last week that Job's initial response to all of this loss was, quite frankly, to me, first passed through. It was unbelievable. See, Job so rooted his trust So rooted his love for God in his life that even in the middle of that loss, the biblical account showed us last week that Job still worshiped God. And he never said a negative thing against God when he was responding to this in the early days of sheltering in God. Job puts on one of the greatest human displays of what it looks like to shelter in God in the most difficult of times. But I think you remember that I told you back in week one of our study that things weren't over for Job in two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. The scriptures tell us that things went on for for months. And at first, Job is very successful um, in, in just sheltering in God. But the longer that thing drug out, the deeper his struggle became. And eventually we know at the end of chapter 2 tells us that three of Job's friends show up. And for the first week, they just sit with him. They just kind of do the ministry of presence. They don't, they don't talk to Job much of anything. They're just present with him in his sorrow. But then, after a week is up, they, they begin and if you go back to chapter 2 and want to look, you can go back and, and do that. We mentioned this last week. Uh, the, fr- the three friends' names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You can read about where they're from and all that in, in chapter 2. But these are like three of his, his buds. I mean, th- these are guys that he loved and he hung out with. And uh, so th- th- they show up on the scene. And they, they start this conversation after a week that becomes an accusation. And it leads us to Job chapter 9. And we, we get Job finally kind of responding to this dialogue that's taking place with him and his friends. It's the first of several rounds of discourse. And there's this kind of back and forth reasoning that's going on. I encourage you to go back and read it all later. But I'm going to briefly sum up the, the reasoning of Job's friends. Because what this points to really is their, their, their world view. Their understanding of, of God and, and th- things that are transcendent. And here's basically what it is Number one, God blesses the righteous and afflicts the wicked. Number two, God has afflicted you, Job. Number three, therefore, Job, you must be wicked. That was kind of their whole summary of Job's situation. And their worldview would be something like this God blesses the righteous. And he blows away, blasts the wicked. That's how you can tell, they would say, who's in God's club and who's not. And Job, from all accounts, had been really blasted. And so for them, there was only one real conclusion. Job must be a really secretively horrible guy. And now, these friends, where Job had been sheltering in God pretty well, He begins to struggle. They make it difficult for Job, if not almost impossible for Job, to really shelter in God. And in chapter 9, we have a couple of dilemmas that Job points out because of this exchange. It's actually in his response to his friends, he begins to describe the human condition and two really big human dilemmas. And if you look with me, look at Job chapter 9, verse 1. It says this. Then Job answered and said, truly... I know it is so, and we'll come back to what he knows is so in just a minute. But then Job says this, but how can a man be in the right before God? Friends, that's a a big question. Verse 3, he goes on to say, if one wished to contend with him, speaking of God, one could not answer him, but not once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him? And ever succeeded, Job asks. And so here's the big first dilemma that Job points to, and it's this. And it's a dilemma that we must deal with. We must deal with the dilemma of righteousness. Job put it this way, but how can a man, and and you can add any man, any woman, how can a man be right before God? Job's statement, again, is a response to his friend's accusations. Uh, One of his friends, Eliphaz, back in chapter 4, he's speaking to Job, and in in, in Job 4, verses 7 through 9, Eliphaz says this, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? He's kind of asking this question, extending this out. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they're consumed. And so what he's basically saying to Job is, Job, everybody may think you're righteous, but dude, you're obviously not. No way that you could be in and all this coming down on you. If you jump down to verse 17, he continues, Can mortal man be in right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? In other words, what he's saying is, Job, you're not pure. Job, you're not righteous. In fact, you must be very, very wicked to have to sustain all of these blasts from God. Then another friend, if that's what you want to call him, Bildad. He comes leveling his accusations. In chapter 8, verse 20, Bildad says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. He's making this comparison. And you can just kind of hear the implications of these two friends are making against Job. And and here's, if you, again, started the study with us back in in, in Job chapter 1, God himself. Now, Job never hears this and his friends never hear this from God. But a, a conversation going on in heaven, God declares Job blameless. Now his friends are basically declaring him an evildoer. His friends are saying, you're not righteous. And so we get to chapter 9, and Job is responding. And, And Job basically says, I know. I told you we'd come back to this, I know. Job comes back and says, I know. It's true. How can any man be righteous when you think about who God is? Job is saying, Bildad? Eliphaz, you you guys are right i'm I'm tracking with you i'm not righteous but no one is when you compare yourself to god and here job is struggling he's struggling to stay sheltered in god he's fighting hard i mean if you read the whole book of job one of the things you'll walk away saying that guy is a fighter he contends for his faith Got a question for you, for for those of you in the house too. How many of you know who Angelina Friedman is? Angelina Friedman. She's from uh, Westchester, New York. Does that help? She recently, um, I think she just turned 102. Does that help? How about her picture, Stephen? Can you throw her picture up? How about her picture? Does that help? Angela Lena Friedman um, contracted COVID virus. She, She survived it. She also was born the year of the Spanish flu pandemic. One of the few people on the planet who has survived two global pandemics. And she ended up getting kind of rushed to the hospital, and one of the healthcare professionals who was taking care of her said, This woman is a fighter that she, she kind of fought back, and by the grace of God, she, she was healed. Now, again, if you, if you read the book of Job, you're going to know that this guy, he's a fighter. Now, Job isn't necessarily fighting to draw his next breath. He was in a different kind of fight, a different kind of struggle with other forces. First of all, Job has to fight his own emotions you know, of dealing with the loss and dealing with the, the disease that he has. Then he had to fight with his wife who basically counseled him to you know, curse God, give up on life, just die. Then he, he ends up fighting with his friends and that runs through almost the entire book of Job as this back and forth, back and forth struggle. But really, I think the greatest struggle that Job had was with God. He, he's, he's just wrestling to understand something new about God that he, he may have never thought this deeply about. And that was how perfect God is. He's, he's in this struggle. And he, he comes to the conclusion, who could ever be righteous before God? In verse 9, Uh, uh, chapter chapter 9 verse 14 Job is, is talking about God and in verse 14 he says how then can I answer him and choose my words before him for though I were right he's saying even though I were right I couldn't give an answer I would have to just implore the mercy of my judge he's saying that he realizes there is this great dilemma that he's facing concerning God God is perfect nobody else is Now, some people in our culture would say, so what's the big dilemma about that? See, what Job is recognizing is that that God is in a category all unto himself, that no one can even relate to that, that we can't even be in that category. We can't think in that category. We're so far out of that category, we don't even know what the category looks like. And if God is perfect... And humanity is imperfect. How can we even have a conversation with God, much less a a relationship? Or worse still, how could we just be righteous before him? I hope you're following Job's thinking here. Job is saying to his friends, hey guys, you're saying I'm I'm unrighteous. I I agree, I'll raise a hand, give testimony. Truthfully, we all are. And, And because I see that God is perfect and He's totally righteous, and I'm not. Man, that doesn't give me warm fuzzies. That doesn't draw me closer to Him. Man, it scares me. It brings fear in my heart. God, God is transcendent. God is unmatched. God is unrivaled. So, what what do I do now? In fact, what what do you, what will any of us do? See, there's this huge. Mismatch. There's this huge ongoing dilemma, and it runs throughout the entire Bible. The Bible actually points it out consistently, the Bible continually highlights it, and it gets read very clearly in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul just comes straight out pointing out this dilemma. He actually quotes an Old Testament passage from Psalms 14 in Romans 3. Paul writes this to the church at Rome He says, None is righteous. No, not one. Another psalmist in Psalm 130 drills down a little bit deeper into this idea. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? God, if you really kept our iniquities out in front, it would, nobody would be good enough. No, no matter how well-intentioned. God, if you dealt with us only on the basis of what we deserve, nobody could stand before you. So how do we overcome a dilemma such as this? How do, we, how do we deal with this reality that God is totally righteous and we totally are not? Remember Job's question? How can a man be righteous before God? Now, over the years, I've observed at least three, there are probably more, but at least three basic human devices, I'll call them, that we try to use to address this dilemma, to deal with this dilemma of, of righteousness. Let me give them to you real quick. The first one is this. First device is this, personal goodness. We try to use personal goodness. Second device I see people using is pursuing religion. And the third device is just a pious sincerity. Let me go back and kind of unpack these for a second some people will say you know all you need to do is just be a a good person and if you get to the end of your life and the good deeds outweigh your bad deeds then you'll 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 make it to heaven you know if there's a god in heaven then you know it just makes sense if he's good that good people would go to heaven but the bible doesn't say that's possible God doesn't agree with that way of thinking. God', God speaking, actually to His own people, that he had a special chosen people to uh, communicate His word to the world, the truth about Him, the, the, the Jewish people. He spoke through one of their prophets, Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah declares this from God. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment." A filthy rag some translators use. Some translators go as far as to say uh, a bloody, nasty garment. In the New Testament, Paul, writing about this human condition, what it looks like to be made right with God, says this. It will never be the results of works. It won't ever happen. So that anybody could boast. See, friends, there are going to be some things you'll never hear in heaven. You know what one of them is? You're never going to hear somebody in heaven bragging about how good they were that got them there. Could you imagine how wretched heaven would be if all we did for all eternity was listen to one another, sit around and talk about how good my good deeds were that got me into heaven? I don't know about you, but I think that would be more like hell than heaven to have to sit through that, people bragging about themselves. You know, It's not a -a bragamony that's going to get you into heaven. It's a testimony of what somebody else has done for you. So personal goodness doesn't work. Second device that I, I see people using all the time is pursuing religion. I'll, I'll do the rituals, man. I'll, I'll do the disciplines. I'll, I'll observe the laws. You know, I'll go on some kind of spiritual pilgr- pilgrimage somewhere. I'll, I'll work all the, the religious angles. I'll do the religious activities. I'll, I'll do those kinds of things. And there are a lot of worldly religions, world religions, that subscribe to this. In Hinduism, there's this thing called uh, karma margo. And and it's a way that people's works, you know, if they do these religious things, they're going to make it in the paradise. In Buddhism, uh, it's taught that by the right effort and by right meditation and by avoiding certain activities, one can can engage in these things and make their way into, into the ultimate heaven. In Islam, there are these five pillars of faith. And and so what you have to do is, first of all, confess that Allah alone is God. Number two, you have to uh, consistently engage a certain time and method of prayer. Number three, you have to keep Ramadan, which is this monthly feast that happens once a year. Number four, you have to keep the tithe. You have to give a certain amount. And number five, you have to keep Hajj, which is basically you have to once in your lifetime take a pilgrimage to Mecca. And you, get, you do all those things, and even after doing all those things, the Muslim is still uncertain as to whether or not they'll make it to heaven. Because God, to them, is arbitrary, not absolute. They may make it. They may not. Some people try to twist the truth about Christianity to look something like that. Try to make Christianity into a, a kind of a religious self-help or a religious self-effort, self-righteous pathway. People say, look, I'll, I'll do this. I'll, I'll keep the Ten Commandments. Or I'll keep the, the Sermon on the Mount. If you ever hear somebody say that that's what they're doing, they're lying. You, you can't, nobody's going to keep the Ten all the time, their whole lives. And nobody is definitely going to keep all of the teachings of Jesus just in his, his one sermon on the mount. It's not going to happen. And so, you know, the, the Bible says even, even if you did all that, you would still be a, a sinner. Romans 3.23 tells us this, For everyone has sinned, and that it describes what that is. It's a condition where we have fallen short of God's glorious standards. So your religion, no matter what it is, will not cut it. Jesus told this incredible story in Luke chapter 18 to point this out. Jesus told us this, he said, in the story that two men went up to the temple to pray. One was this Pharisee and the other was this despised tax collector. And the Pharisee, the Bible tells us, stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. This is the Pharisee's prayer. He says, I I thank you, God, That I'm not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like this tax collector. And he goes on to say, I I, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of my income. But then Jesus says the tax collector stood at a distance. He dared not even lift his eyes up to heaven. And listen to, to, to his prayer says he beat his chest and in sorrow said oh god be merciful to me i am a sinner and then jesus said this he said i tell you the sinner not the pharisee was right before god was justified before god See, it's not personal goodness. It's not pursuing religion. A third device that people try to employ to overcome this righteousness dilemma, and I would say, here's what the majority of people try to do. They try being very sincere. They'll tell you what you believe doesn't really matter, what you subscribe to, you know, what you don't believe. doesn't really matter what you do as long as you're just sincere. You know, it's kind of like you'll hear people say, you know, are you finding your way? Are you doing what's in your heart? Are you being true to yourself? This is not going to come up on the screen. It's not in your notes. You may want to write it down. Proverbs 1625. Proverbs 1625 says this there is a way that seems right to a man, your your way, but the Proverb tells us, its end leads to death. And so we still have these lingering questions that Job had. You know, how can a man be righteous before God? See, this righteousness, that dilemma that Job sees, he sees with glaring clarity. And he quickly points it out to his friends. Now, I want you, here's what I want you to do with that dilemma. I want you to hold that thought for just a second, okay? Because I want to give you the second dilemma before we try to answer them. The second dilemma that Job points out is this. We must Deal with the dilemma of distinctiveness. We we've talked a little bit about it, but I want to blow it up even bigger. And there are a couple of components to this that Job describes in Job chapter 9. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says this. For he, talking about God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him. We, we couldn't even talk. That we should uh, come to trial together. It would be ridiculous if I tried to be in a trial with God. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on both of us. Job is very insightful. He gives this incredible word picture here. What Job is saying is, I need somebody who can bring me into God's presence. Job begins to really understand and communicate and say this to his friends. There is this great big breach, this great big chasm that is too big for me to make it across on my own or for, for anyone to make it across on my own. He's saying, God, you are so sovereign. God, you are so perfect. You are so omnipotent. God, I think, I think there needs to be a representative. I think there needs to be kind of this, this middleman go-between mediator between, between you and, and us, I love the way the Living Bible translates verse 33 of Job chapter 9. It says this, but there is no umpire between us, no middleman, no mediator to bring us together. And see, Job is crying out for a mediator. He's crying out for this kind of middleman go-between. You know, in our culture, one of the things we try to get rid of a lot is the middleman. You know, uh, when you're kind of doing the, the 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 whole real retail thing, we want to shop directly from what the manufacturer. You know, we we want to go direct to the manufacturer, cut out the retailer, save a little bit of money. But Job is saying, I need a middleman. I need to go between God. There's no way I could even think of, of, of making it across this chasm to you because, God, you are so distinct. You are so utterly different. God, you're so great, and I'm just the opposite. God, you're so righteous, and I'm unrighteous. Job is saying there's just no way for us to ever get together. Remember in verse 33, he says, there is no arbiter between us in the middle of us who may lay his hand on you and and me on both of us. You know, that's what an arbiter does. They stand between two parties and they effectively lay their hand on this party and this party and they try to bring the differences, shake those out, help them find a place where they can be brought together. For example, uh, an attorney... An attorney stands between the accused and the judge or jury. The attorney understands the legal systems, the procedures. They, they know the, kind of the thinking of judges and juries. They, they know what the accused is up against. So, a, a good lawyer, she can lay her hands on, on both of them and try to bring something of mediation there. One, one of the mediators that I've experienced before is a translator. Where you have two different people, you know, groups, two different languages, maybe two different completely cultures. But if the translator understands both, they can kind of lay hands on both. I know when we've gone to Ecuador and Cuba and other places around the world seeking to bring the gospel, you know, I've loved it that we've always had this middle man or middle woman who's able to bridge the language dilemma, the cultural dilemma. I remember asking one of, uh, of our translators one time, I had this, I was supposed to bring a message uh, there and I, I had a couple of, of what I'll call humorous points that I thought would be humorous and so I told him to the translator and it didn't work in their culture. He said, nah, don't want to use that one. You, it just won't work. See, Job is saying, God, there's got to be a rep. There's got to be this person in between. God, I wish I had somebody who could help me relate to you. And the fact to me that Job chooses this word, he's sending, I think, a message to his friends. He's saying, it ain't you. It obviously is not you guys. You're accusing me. You're not helping me. You're making, you're making matters worse. And we have that same problem in our culture today. The world is filled with would-be mediators, you know, people who are going to offer you this advice or this enlightenment. You know, you'll, you're a spiritual guide, you know, who will take you to your horoscope, a medium who will read your palm, a, a priest who will say, you know, our church is the only real church, or a pastor who will say, listen to only what I say, nobody else. And, and they, they all try to offer these solutions, but they never really deliver the goods. They're a lot like Job's friends. I don't know if you're aware of this. This is one of my favorite verses in the book of Job. Job looks at his friends in, in Job 16 and he says this to them. What miserable comforters you are. I mean, you guys, as far as it, when it comes to, if you're trying to comfort me, you, you guys are miserable failures. He says, you're not helping me connect to God at all. Job was looking for something that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, would never completely provide. If you've you've been with me in this series, you you may remember out of the, the, the first time that one of the things I told you is that many historians... And theologians, and and I'm of this school of thought as well, believe that Job is one of the oldest, one of the earliest books of the Bible that was written. That it was actually written kind of in the patriarchal times, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, somewhere in, in, in that flow. And that after that time frame, it was after the patriarchal period, that the Old Testament, we see the development of a system of mediation, so to speak. It was prophets and priests. It was a priestly system and prophets and and God would use prophets to speak to his people and then priests would represent the people before God. Now, though some of them were incredible people, some some great people of faith, all of them were still imperfect. Moses and Aaron, the high priest, the prophets, all of them were still imperfect. They were still sinners too. So sacrifices had to be made for them as well and sacrifices had to be made for the ones making sacrifices. There was nothing that completely bridged the gap, nothing, no one who could put their hand on God and on the people and bring us together. Job wasn't the only one who lamented this. The prophet Isaiah, again, lamented how bad this was in Isaiah chapter 59. He says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The gap's too wide. The dilemma's too big. See, we've got to deal with these two dilemmas, the dilemma of righteousness and this dilemma of distinctiveness. You know, God is in heaven, we're on earth. God is transcendent, but we're, we're limited to time and space. How do we deal with these? In God's word has dealt with it for us. God God steps in and, and, and deals with this for us. And here's what God does. God takes our two dilemmas and provides one solution. We have two dilemmas, two great dilemmas, and God provides one great solution, an even greater solution. Both dilemmas Job verbalized. One, both, are answered in the New Testament. The perfect arbiter between God and mankind is given. The Bible calls him our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Kyler read this this earlier. I just want to remind you some of what it says in Hebrews 9, verses 11 and following. It says, so Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. With his own blood. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all time. He's there. And he secured our redemption forever. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect, perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one, there's only one, the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people. Now, we could kind of slam Job, but I'm not going to do it for getting kind of all riled up about how bad he was feeling, how difficult life became, how overwhelmed he felt, how cut off from God he felt without a mediator. I'm not going to slam Job for that, but here's what I need to do for just a second. I need to, I need to say something to those of us who are New Testament believers. Based on what we can know that Job did not know. Based on what we are, who we are. They sang about it earlier. Who we are and what we have in Jesus. See, there, there is really no legitimate reason other than maybe, maybe a, a, a chemical brain imbalance. There's no legitimate reason for New Testament followers of Jesus to ever be completely overwhelmed and overrun. There, there, there's none. Because we can and we should shelter in Jesus, in the grace of God through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is how God deals with people now. Not like he did with Job. Jesus is how God deals with sinners. Jesus is how God brings us together us and and god see the dilemma that job outlined was how could a man be righteous before god and and we saw the answer is not be good or be religious or be sincere the answer is be honest that's what job was job was job was honest job just agreed god you're right i'm unrighteous and that's where we have to start and then job humbled himself he and we have to do we have to open our hearts and we have to say dear god I choose to receive your solution to my unrighteousness. And you say, it's Jesus. It's your perfect son, Jesus. Listen to how God's word described this in Romans chapter 3. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with God, made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writing of Moses and the prophets long ago. Verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith, our trust, our hope in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes. No matter who we are. No matter who we are, no matter what you've done or how long you've done it, Jesus Christ will provide the righteousness you could never produce. You don't earn it, you just receive it in Jesus. You get his righteousness so that God declares that you're right forever. I remember hearing a story about a man who bought a Rolls-Royce over in England and had it shipped to the United States. And he'd owned the car for several years, and he decided he was going to take a cross-country trip on it. in it. And he was heading across the country, and the, the car broke down. And they have the repair number right in the dashboard, so he called the repair number... And, um, and they sent a, a mechanic out to fix the Rolls Royce. And, he, you know, he went on, finished his trip. And um, a few months later, he got to thinking about it. I, I never saw a, a bill about this. And he began to wonder, ooh, wonder how much I owe. And so he, he started calling the company. And he, he finally talked to somebody and said, here's what, here's what happened. Here's the date it happened. Here, here was the situation. Here's what the mechanic told me was done. Um, so how much, how much do I owe you? And uh, the guy said, let me put you on hold. And uh, another voice came back on the line and said this. There is no record that anything ever went wrong with your Rolls Royce. And the guy went through it again. He said, no, here's here's my name, here's the details, here's the date. And the voice came back again and said, there is no record that anything ever went wrong with your Rolls Royce. In a sense... That's what God has done with us. Now, you and I both know there's plenty that's gone wrong in us. Trust me, uh, I have plenty of things wrong in me. Job said plenty of stuff wrong in me, I'm, I'm not righteous. But see, when it comes to Jesus, when you receive Jesus, God says, I no longer keep those records. They're, they're, they're wiped out. See, not because of me, but because that's how good Jesus is. That's how wonderful he is. Our second dilemma that Job pointed out, we find in Jesus this representative, this umpire, this middleman mediator, arbiter that we need it. The dilemma of the distinctiveness of God is only solved in Jesus Christ. Paul writing to His protege, Timothy, writes these words. He says there's only one God and there is only one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, it's written right there. He's the perfect representative, the perfect arbiter, the perfect mediator. Jesus is the only one able and worthy to lay hand on God and lay a hand on us and bring us together. Only Jesus can do that. Job cries out. Because he needs someone to do that for him. And God's answer was to send his only begotten son. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, that's why he was born in the likeness of men. So that he could reconcile us to God. And see, Jesus did that on the cross. On the cross, so to speak, with his arms stretched out, with one hand he could reach out to God His father, and with the other hand, he could reach out and he could bring us together. I'm gonna ask the worship team if you guys would just start making your way up here. See, if you know Jesus personally, if you already have this place to shelter when the pain of this world tries to overwhelm you, you need to turn to him. You need to shelter in him. You need to continually remind yourself of who he is and what he's done for you. You need to preach yourself the gospel. If you don't know him personally, you can today. It starts by calling on the name of Jesus, calling on his name knowing now that he alone can save, calling on his name in faith and trust that only he can bring you right, make you right with God and draw you near to God and bring you together. See, Jesus can raise you to new life in God because he's been raised to life. See, Jesus was dead and he conquered death for us he's our resurrecting king and in his name in the name of jesus you can find life life now and life eternal he can move you bring you from death to life but you have to trust him it has to be a personal decision i'm going to ask you to pray with me and then i'm going to ask you to try to listen to the words read them as they come on the screen it's the story of the gospel in Jesus, will you trust and pray with me? Jesus, we come to worship you. Those of us who know you, we come to remind ourselves that we can shelter in you. We don't have to be overwhelmed. Maybe, maybe you're there and you don't know him personally, and you just need to hear the full story of what he has done and what he can do for you. Worship him now. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.